Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors reveal how they unlock their creative process. I'm Nihal Arthanaik and I'm joined by a Jamaican author whose novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, won many awards, including the Man Booker Prize in 2015. He says his new novel, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, was written as a sort of African Game of Thrones, a fantasy novel from that continent, reclaiming myths, monsters and magic. Here to explain more is Marlon James. Hey, Marlon, how are you? I'm all right. I'm at that stage where I'm in denial and I'm exhausted. So I'm slightly delirious, but I'm good. Now, Marlon, regular listeners will know that we ask authors to bring a handful of objects that have inspired them. But you've literally come straight from a tour of the US. We couldn't possibly ask you to squeeze anything else into your suitcase. Do you get to enjoy London at all while you're here? I know you are doing round after round after round of Mm -hmm. things like this. You know, I mean, I stole sometimes Sunday night. But other than that, it's been a pretty big whirlwind. But um, Sunday night, I think I was in the West End. I knew because there were a lot more gay people. Yeah. So yeah. I'm always good for that. Yeah. And <laughs> and there was a, it was weird. It, we, there was a dish called venison faggot. Yes. And I was like, isn't that a little inappropriate? So that's a very different word here. I guess, but I thought it was a pile of twigs or something. Yeah. So cigarettes uh, uh, used to be called fags, right? Yeah, but these were were two massive beef balls. I was like, is this like deer testicles? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how to read these connotations. Yeah, I wonder if you look at those things now through Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and think of them as as anointed charms. The, The giant venison. Testicles hanging, rotting from a... I mean, there is occasional phallic stuff in the book, so... (laughs) No doubt. Um, How easy is it, in a pithy, summarised way, Mm -hmm. to describe Black Leopard, Red Wolf? (laughs) I just basically give a a synopsis of the plot, really. A slave trader hires a bunch of mercenaries to find a kid who's been missing for three years, a boy, and... The mission, instead of finding the boy, leads to the boy's murder. And there are only a few witnesses, and there's an inquisition to find out what the hell happened. And each witness, each witness's testimony adds up to a different book. So there are three books, and it's basically three different witnesses telling the same story. The reader, at the end of this, is going to have to be the one who decides what's truth, because I'm not. There won't be Black Leopard, Red Wolf Part 4, where I go, what really happened was, no, I'm leaving the burden of deciding who's telling the truth on the reader. I loved this book. Thank you. But one thing when I started to read it was, it reminded me, because music is a big part of my life. I was a DJ Mm -hmm. for many years. It's as if I'd been listening to Jay-Z my whole life, and then suddenly Mm -hmm. someone brought Miles Davis into my life. Mm -hmm. And I had to re- design mm-hmm. how I read, how I listen, how I process. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? It was pretty much the same thing. I had to redesign how I wrote and and how words sound and how even something as simple as how a sentence comes together. Because I was using different systems. I grew up in a former British colony. I speak English. Uh, my standard English is actually a pretty colonial English. Going to other languages and cultures and use those language systems. I wasn't, I wasn't going to write a novel in Swahili or a novel in, in, in Wolof. But I took a lot from the, how those language systems and those grammar systems work. For example, 
some of the characters in the book, like Sogolon, only speaking present tense regardless, which actually is something is one of the things that um, that Jamaicans do. We just always thought it was a sign of backward English. It was a sign that it's just another thing that, you know, big old master couldn't stomp out on the slave plantation. That um, in, in a lot of these languages, the verb always stays present tense. The rest of the sentence shifts. So it goes, it, it tells you that it's past. Like in Jamaica, nobody says he went. They say, him did go. Or he'll be along soon. Him soon go. Go stays present tense. It's the words around it that shift. There are a lot of African languages like that. But to recognize that and then rewrite English in that way, it took a commitment. Especially then you have to write four or five characters who have four different kinds of English, none of which is English English. I mean, I researched this book for a good two years before I wrote a word so that I could write that way without necessarily you know, going mad. Do you think there's an African muscle memory in that you were taken your ancestors from Africa mm-hmm. and the culture was people would attempt to destroy everything mm-hmm. that was African in you, but yet something remains. Did you find mm-hmm. that as you discovered the rhythm that it became so natural to you? Absolutely agree there's an African muscle memory, just as how Irish Americans have an Irish muscle memory. Here's another example of African muscle memory, which I wouldn't have known had I not researched it. One of the biggest sources of agitation when black and white people talk about race is when black people always use the present tense. And white people go, but I didn't do it. Why do you keep saying you? And what they don't realize is that it's a very African thing to put time on a continuum. Everything is present tense and everything is past tense. There is no past, present, future. Everything is on a timeline. It's the way in which a lot of African cultures view temporality, which is why something like death is irrelevant. So, yeah, he's gone to join the ancestors, but the ancestors aren't 200 miles away. The ancestors are in that tree over there. They show up every every midnight. They show up. Again, that's another, I think, African Muslim memory of... um, looking at time and history, moving almost associatively instead of in a linear way. So in that respect, Marlon, the writing of this, Mm. did it have a profound effect on you beyond just the fact that you're a great writer? It had something much deeper. Yeah. I mean, it had a profound effect on my queerness, which is the last thing in the world I expected it to have an effect on because, you know, I believe the press. I believe what I read about, um, you know, how homophobic Uganda is and and how homophobic Nigeria is and how they're being swept in evangelical Christianity and so on. And, and colonial things, laws, in fact. A lot of the laws that yeah. across the Caribbean, for instance. In the across the Caribbean, they're Victorian. I, I always say oh, homophobia is very Victorian. But one of the things that I found that was a product of the research is just how open-minded and accepting a lot of African cultures, a lot of African peoples, African territories, even African nations were about queerness and non-binariness and even trans, transition. And if you talk to, and I've talked to quite a few African writers. I remember I was in your seat talking to Chimamanda Adichie, and she mentioned, you know, everybody knew of the two aunts at the end of the street. Everybody knew who they were. And it's not to say everybody was open-minded or everybody was gay-friendly. That's not what she's saying at all. But that Everybody kind of had a tacit understanding that if those two aunts were kicked out of the neighborhood, the neighborhood would fall apart. And it wasn't until TV preachers from America showed up in Africa 
that the invention of homophobia happened. None of this I'd know, and none of this I was thinking. If I'm trying to write a fantasy novel, why would I be? I'm not researching queerness. I don't need validation for queerness. But going back to ancient Africa was the last place I expected to find it. And that's brilliant because, of course, people could have a misreading of this, saying that you are bringing 21st century sexuality Mm -hmm. to this, when actually what you are doing is exposing the ancient. Absolutely. Look at non-binariness. Agent Africans have been calling people they for 4,000 years. But that was a research. That wasn't me trying to score points or go, take that, homophobes. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, Look how woke I am. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm so sleepy right now. <laughs> it was all a research, and that was, it, was, it was so profound for me. And I knew it had to be in the book. What did you enjoy most, Marlon, about this process? We've already talked about some of the things of how it changed you profoundly. Mm-hmm. But what about the enjoyment? Because there's parts in this when I'm reading it and I feel like someone's grabbed me by the back of the neck and it's mm-hmm. dragging me along and I love it. Mm-hmm. I write the way I read. If I am not enjoying it as a reader, I can't write it. If there's a scene that surprised the reader, it surprised me. If there's a scene that scared the reader, it scared me. And I write that way. I write I write to be constantly surprised. I write for my characters to surprise me. I write for my characters to disappoint me. You know, to make you laugh. To make me laugh, sometimes to infuriate the crap out of me. But also, to me, a really good writing day is at the end of it, I go, I didn't see that coming. And I think, and that's how I write. That's how I've written three novels now. It has to be constantly evolving and constantly surprising. I'm an exhaustive plotter. Which is really funny because my plot lines are usually useless. Nothing I write happens. I'm obsessed with it. I have, I have post-its on the wall. I go through books and books and plot charts, and then I promptly ignore them. That makes sense why you're friends with Salman Rushdie. Because <laughs> he has told me this. That's the thing about surprising himself. Mm-hmm. About where he's going to go. I love, I love how you kind of make fun of almost what you're doing. So this used to be a river, he said. What happened to it? It hates the smell of man and flows under the earth whenever we approach. Truly? No, it's the end of the rainy season. It's <laughs> <laughs> like that, which made me think, okay, that's, yeah. that's you lure me to a place and then mm. you'll take the mickey out of the fact that I've, I've yeah. gone to that place with you. But also, I think there are expectations people have when they hear an African novel, an African fantasy or so on. It actually reminds me again when I was interviewing Chimamanda and somebody go, what's your writing ritual? I'm here going, I can't believe this said ritual. Oh, God, here we go. And I'm sure my mind says, well, you know, I, I say a few incantations and then, you know, I light a special candle. <laughs> and then I, and he says, no, I sit down behind a laptop and I write. <laughs> but because there are parts in it when even the characters know where people have a certain expectation of what's going to happen in an African novel or a fantasy novel and to just, you know, Take the piss out of it. There is something sadomasochistic in taking on a project mm. of this size. Why did you do that? But aren't all writers sadomasochistic, though? Yeah, that's true. You know, but this I, is a whole different level. I mean, you built yourself your own dungeon here. Yeah. I, you and know manacled what? yourself to the wall. <laughs> I do think if you looked into something that is the hardest work you've ever done, but the most fun you've ever had, I think you're in the perfect place. And for me... The fact that this is the most, you know, back-breaking, skull-crushing thing I've ever done. 
and also the most fun I've ever had are not mutually exclusive. Which, yes, is does sound very masochistic. It's funny, because if you asked me this question like 10 years ago, I'd simply say, because I find fictional worlds way better than the world I'm living in. So I do whatever it takes to always go back there. I quite like the world I'm living in now, but I still take great pleasure in leaving it behind and going back. And, and, and I think I write really immersive novels, or it's very immersive for the reader, because it's super immersive for me. You have to commit. It's, I think it's one of the reasons why there are so many pictures and stuff on my wall. Like in my, When I step into the room I write, I, it should feel like the place I'm writing about. So I do immerse myself. I do actually do go into that dungeon. There are pictures on the wall. There are notes. A lot of it is notes and stuff that sometimes appear in the book and sometimes don't. It's just that I don't think I can retain all of this in my head. When I was writing my slavery novel, I had things like runaway slave posters on the wall and so on. Brief history at Bob Marley stuff all over it. I do create a room to write. Even physically, I do immerse myself you know, into a novel. And I have to ask you about the amazing maps you created for the new worlds in Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Extraordinary. Those are just fun. Yeah. I mean, that was that from the start that you wanted to do that as well? Not just writing the text, but drawing the world? Yeah. There was a very rudimentary form of this map that I drew because I, I wanted a world that felt lived in. The thing about fantasy in particular, and to a lesser extent historical fiction, is that you can't enter a world and feel like you yourself is a tourist in it. It's fine enough that I'm writing a fantasy world and it's new for the reader, but it's not new for the characters. And I have to remember that, that a character doesn't walk around and stand and gawking at everything. You know, look at that magnificent three-legged creature. It's like, no, you saw it yesterday, fool. <laughs> so my characters have to move in a world that they take for granted. So I knew I had to get to the point where I take the world for granted, even as I'm building it. And a great way of doing this is maps, because maps situate your characters in actual space, right down to, say, street. So I know so I know very well the character wouldn't have turned or left. He would have turned right, because right is the road that leads to such and such. But I had to draw a map to know that. In Br- Brief History of Seven Killings, a lot of scenes happen in the Bronx. I had to get a map of the Bronx. So I knew that it has to be Gunnell Road and not Boston Road. But you have to get that point with fantasy as well. You're building this world, and world building takes a lot of time. But when you start to write about the world, you have to write as if it's always there. So you do have to turn Middle Earth or Wakanda or the Northlands into New York City, you know, or the streets of London. It has to, Tony Morrison said, you know, make the strange familiar. You have to make the strange familiar. And um, that's what maps help. Plus, maps are really cool to draw, and I like drawing. How important are comic books to this? Hugely, hugely. It's a superhero team, basically. (laughs) It's basically my X-Men that are assembled. Right now to somebody who controls wind. I'm surprised I'm not being sued yet. Comics are hugely important for lots of reasons. One, I think a lot of my action is still derived from comics. And I wish people understand when I say your war scenes feel very comic booky that I take that as a huge compliment. I'm not trying to write realistic war scenes. I haven't been in war. I can write Zap and Pow, though. It's very important in terms of that. But it also is very important in terms of how you write about misfits. I am a huge, huge, huge devotee of X-Men. And I've always said reading X-Men is a lot like being an X-Man. 
especially growing up a nerd, I used to, in order to win over friends, I'd do my friends' homework for them. And then as soon as that was done, they'd go right back to calling me faggot or blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I remember reading X-Men going, holy crap, I am an X-Men. Here am I serving and protecting a world that despises me, and I'll do it again tomorrow. I'm a total mutant. <laughs> Even that kind of outcastness, fringeness, is what I got from comics. Even when Tracker is living in a city, he lives on the fringe of it. He lives in Malakal, and it makes it clear he lives near a wall. He's barely, literally barely hanging on to society, even as he works in it. And I think that's something I did get from, I did get from comics. Do you still have your comic collection, Richard? They're in Jamaica, and they're in a room, and I'm pretty sure rats have eaten all of them by now, which would be really, really sad, because I got some really big gems in there. But I still read comics. You know, I'm a huge devotee of Hellboy. No, I'm always buying comics. There is there is a legend that's totally true about me nearly missing my own autograph line because I went to line up for Mike Mignola. <laughs> <laughs> Who does Hellboy? Well, okay, so you are a super fan then. Mm-hmm. And it really, really influenced mm-hmm. this world that you've created uh, here. One thing you notice in Black Leopard, Red Wolf is the human. A part of that is born out of the conflict the tracker has with other characters, quite considerable conflict. Uh, there's a great bit where he meets a clever buffalo. Let's hear that extract of the audiobook now. In the courtyard, pulling up the few shrubs from the dirt, stood a buffalo, male, brown-black, body longer than one and a half of me, lying flat, his horns already fused into a crown and dipping downward to curve back upward like a grand hairstyle. Except I have seen a buffalo kill three hunters and rip a lion in two. So I gave this buffalo wide space as I walked to the archway. He looked up and moved right into my way. I remembered again I needed new hatchets, not that either hatchet or knife could win against him. I did not smell urine. I was not stepping into his boundary. The buffalo did not snort and did not kick his hooves in the dirt, but he stared at me, from my feet all the way up to my neck, then down, then up. Then down, then up, and slowly annoying me. Buffaloes cannot laugh, but I would swear to the gods that he did. Then he shook his head. More than a nod, a rough swing left and right, then right and left again. I stepped aside and walked, but he stepped right in my way. That was Black Leopard, Red Wolf, written by my guest Marlon James and read there by Dion Graham. Hilarious. Buffalo is one of my favorite characters. I have people who keep threatening to write a spin-off story starring the Buffalo. You know, the Buffalo, I think, came out of a dilemma. If there's one thing I cannot stand in narratives about Africa, particularly nonfiction narratives about Africa, is you have all these one-dimensional humans with these multidimensional lions. But at the same time, I knew I wanted a world where it's not just the dominion of humans because that to me just went back to Western stuff and Western fantasy. And one of the easiest ways to be racist in Western fantasy is to just make the dark characters animalistic. So I knew I didn't want an Orientalist view of animals and nature in Africa, but I also knew I didn't want a view where it's the humans on top and animals or whatever below, because I wasn't writing that world. So the whole idea that there would be an animal, a creature, or a person 
who is pretty sentient and pretty smart. Well, they're already pretty smart, but almost looked upon an equal footing as everybody else. Just was really, really exciting to me. There's also, again, it bears repeating, I'm a part of the comics universe. You know, those characters are always in comics, whether it's Crypto the Superdog or whatever. And also, again, he was so much fun to write. Did you instinctively understand and know that you were never going to orientalize this? Or was it something because of how you were brought up, where Mm. you were brought up, that you had to almost unlearn? Oh, I definitely had to unlearn. I grew up in independent Jamaica, but I still had a very colonial education. I remember talking to both Salman Rushdie and Michael Andachi about this, about our struggles just writing in English. Because all of us learned standard English, but we learned colonial English. And it's not until I started to travel, I realized that when I opened my mouth, I sound like the butler. But I was also deliberate. That's the English they taught us in the Caribbean or in Africa or in India. And to get to the point where English is just another tool as opposed to an instrument of kind of colonialism or orientalizing, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Because I think growing up being conscious of things and even or, or just reading um, contemporary African literature for one thing and having a different view of things than just this sort of Calvinist, white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant kind of thing, having very, very deep suspicions that humans are actually the smartest animal. Because we're the only animal that knows better but won't do better, so I'm not sure how smart we are. Coming to this book, I used to say it is bleaching out the European out of me to write it. I hope I wasn't going to end up orientalizing or exoticizing um, anything. It's double tricky because I'm writing sci-fi. I'm writing fantasy. And I'm writing everything that's supposed to be new and fantastical. So we forgive exoticizing in fantasy all the time because it's fantasy. But even with that, I knew it was also doubly important that um, the characters move in a scene like they're, like they're supposed to be there. And the narration doesn't stop to exoticize the occasions and talk about all sorts of things. And I knew I didn't want to do this kind of Look, Africa is really sophisticated, kind of. So because every you know, the continent don't need this, the continent doesn't need this book. Yeah, uh, it's it's. I needed to write it. They sure as hell don't need it. I hope they like it, but it, it's not. It's not here to perform any sort of healing thing for the continent. And that's another thing that happens too often in narratives about Africa. One acting like Africa is a country, but also this kind of. Without my book, Africa is doomed kind of thing, which I just find absolutely. It would be offensive if it wasn't, if it wasn't funny. Marlon, thank you. What a fascinating guy you are. Thank and you. An, and an amazing, amazing book. My mom will be happy to know I'm fascinating. Just a reminder that if you haven't already done so, do subscribe to the Penguin Podcast using any of the podcatchers such as uh, iTunes, Acast or Spotify on your desktop or smartphone. We're also available on your Alexa-enabled device. And if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin Podcast. We'd love to know what you think. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio comes the series that inspired Game of Thrones. It is 1547 
And after five years' imprisonment and exile far from his homeland, Francis Crawford of Lymond, scholar, soldier, rebel, nobleman, outlaw, has at last come back to Edinburgh. Few civic cares troubled Mungo Tennant, awaiting his cargo, except that the ceaseless renewal of war against England made a watch at the gates much too stringent, and the total defeat by England thirty-four years since at Flodden had caused high walls to be flung around Edinburgh, which were damnably inopportune for a smuggler. And for Crawford of Lymond, now parting the flat waters of the Norloch like an oriflamme in the wake of the boat. For where a smuggler's load could pierce a city's defences, so could an outlawed rebel, whose life would be forfeit if caught. Ahead, the boat scraped on mud and was lifted silently shoreward, the rowers unloaded. Burdened feet trod on grass, crossed a garden, encompassed an obstacle, and were silent within the underground shaft, leading to the cellar, below the cellar, in Mungo's house. The swimmer, collared with duckweed, grounded, shook himself, and unseen followed gently into and out of the same house. Crawford of Lymond was in Edinburgh. Dorothy Dunnett's epic Lymond Chronicles series have received worldwide acclaim and are now all available in audiobook for the first time. The first book, The Game of Kings, is read by David Monteith and is available to download now.